0: Okay, so um, I at times become very fascinated um, by what I think I said and uh, what apparently you think I heard. You heard, and uh, sometimes it's a little troublesome because. Uh, we can tend to hear things sometimes through filters that we require to justify choices that we are making. And then, of course, you get the thing that I steer away from, like the plague at the moment God's told me. Okay? so Preserve that for the extraordinary situations where it's very obvious that something outside of your own capabilities to engineer has occurred, and then that's a good phrase to use. Um, but using it just as an excuse for, or, or a justification for choices that we make ourselves, my question often is in that, uh, God's told me, my question is which God? Because sometimes it's ourselves. So, the reason I say that is that um, I can pinpoint for you uh, throughout my life where I have... Spoken messages that add a prophetic context to them, which always produce something, and the something's not always pleasant. Sometimes the something is is not pleasant, but it is triggered by the prophetic because there's a lot of power. So we have to be very cautious in our own lives that when God might be speaking to us then that might be prophetic, to realise that the choices that we make have long-term consequences on ourselves, on others, and and that we could actually finish up wandering around in circles for 40 years like the children of Israel always going somewhere but never arriving anywhere, treading on lots of land but never possessing anything. Um, And uh, I don't want that to be our portion. And I know that there are prophetic things going on at the moment. Now, I also mentioned last week, uh, which was fascinating how sometimes these things can be kind of turned on their head, uh, about Caleb and Joshua, if you remember. My cry was for a different spirit that equips us to make the journey across the wilderness place to where it is that we are going. And um, I've been thinking a lot about that again this week. It's not particularly what I'm talking about, but it's relevant, it's relevant to, to the weight of, of what, I want to, uh, what I want to say to you. Um, that um, the children of Israel could have made it to where they were going in 11 days. It was the minimum time to make that distance. We know this from scripture. Um, that turned into, into two years because of an inability to, um, to really get a hold of what it was that they were purposed to do and to change sufficiently to be able to accom- accomplish the cause. But that turned into 38 more years for one reason. They were waiting for people to die. There was no other reason than that. 38 years they wandered around the desert waiting for people to die because God said after that two-year period, some of you are not getting this and the chances of some of you getting it are slim but I don't want what's going to happen to be spoiled because you don't get it. So he sent them around for 38 years which, which I don't know about you but I find that incredibly, incredibly sad that that delay would be built in for that reason. And sure enough, that's what happened. Um, everybody who was 20 years of age or older from the time they left Egypt, it says, perished, died in the wilderness. And it was another generation coming through who were the ones who carried the Lord and carried the weight. Now, that, that was not to say that if you weren't of that other generation. Now incidentally, after 40 years of working, those that were under 20, some of them would be 60 by the time they'd finished, so it's not an issue we've got all these young bucks at, you know, 18, 20 years of age, they're now 40, 50, 60 years of age with another generation birthing coming through. But it does mean that sometimes we don't, we don't embrace sufficiently seriously what our journey is and what the implications of that are and what God has has called us to do. And uh, sometimes in that journey that they were going on, none of them could describe what, where they were going looked like. They had some lovely poetic things like, it's the land that flows with milk and honey. What the heck does that mean practically? I know what it means poetically, but, but no one could describe actually what, where they were going looked like. And I'm speaking that because there's a house. I can't describe to you where we're going, what where we're going looks like. Um, but we're going. Anyway. So, bread, two loaves, significant. I said I would talk about this, so I am talking about this. And uh, I call my message tonight, no half-baked gospel, please. My fear is that, and and some of you won't like me to say this, but I'm saying it, a lot of the gospel is half-baked. Outside of the little confines of our own little churchy existence, if you knew the conversation that's going on, on the fringes and outside, you would understand why I say that. Because although there are some issues that we can look at in the context of church that look just big and amazing. It's not cutting it where it needs to cut it and I'm very conscious of that and that's not critical um, of that situation because we're not cutting it either the way that we should do. And um, For the church to continue to be the kingdom of God, uh, we shouldn't get excited when the resources simply get moved around. For example, people from one church move to another church and we wrongly call that church growth. We say, oh, that church is really growing. Well, that church is, but the church isn't. So my, my great challenge is, and, and I've been part of this, I mean, I'm thankful in, in the past we've had large groups of people at times come from other churches and I, I on reflection, have felt some sense of sadness that I allowed that to happen so easily because not for one minute in those days of being so excited with who was coming did I consider how somebody else might have been hurt while I accepted my blessing. And, and, you know, some of that comes with age, some of that comes uh, when you experience the same kinds of pains. So my issue is this. I, I don't want this house to grow because we find a bunch of believers in Jesus who want to be part of this house. I again want us to come back to the core of why we became who we became, for this house to grow from people who are either thought about it but not done anything or have never thought about it and ought to do something and we've gotta get ourselves geared up again and out of where we are to realize that our focus is right there. Our focus is touching the world that does not have an experience of the kingdom of God. now. Uh, I appreciate that our message now is very different to the message we used to have. Um, our message has the same basic ingredients in that our love for Jesus and our trust in the Father's love have not changed. How we understand that have, have made a journey which is not always easy and actually what you find is that, th- that the more you explore and embrace... Um, an incredibly loving father who does incredibly gracious things and is is massively accepting the more you get opposed by the church Uh, and told that's not really the gospel because we are so entrenched in what is a paganistic expression of what we think God has done that's all built into the same principle that says the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased, so there, there's God's justice and there's Jesus, and you'll be rewarded for doing good and you'll be punished for doing bad. Now we have spent time trying to, to, to recover ourselves from that situation that none of us did with any evil intent, we did very passionately, and, and with great sincerity, but, but you know, if you're not happy with where the gospel I believe has gone, then, then I ain't going back. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully we catch it together and hopefully we can keep communicating and hopefully we can reach the world with a, what we call a more beautiful gospel, but that's gonna take our application to that. So these two loaves speak of something very prophetic, which is why I talked about prophetic at the beginning. And uh, I've got them here because, in essence, I'm prophesying with these two loaves. These are two loaves of prophecy of what my desire and heart and intent is for who this house is and where this house continues to go. So let me, uh, let me read some things, just, just for the sake of, of, of time, just to bring me to where I want to go. These two loaves are indications of a truth so vitally important that to miss it is to miss the whole point of the church. The point is simple yet profound. And there are two because it's speaking of two diff- to two different groups existing side by side together. The religious, which is represented by, in the context of Bible, the Jews and Israel. And the unpreprogrammed Gentile, is how I would phrase it, which is the non-Jew that doesn't have the same background or religious instruction or upbringing as the Jew who was raised very religiously in a certain program of thought. But it's the same application with the same expectation on both the religious and the non-religious. So we're all in this, okay? Now to understand why, you have to know a little Jewish history. Um, the Old Testament scriptures describe seven occasions through the year to be marked and celebrated, which the Bible calls feasts. Okay? Those feasts were the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks that we know as Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. This took place over a seven month cycle in the Jewish calendar that to understand them will give you great understanding about how this thing called the kingdom of God really works. And uh, we haven't time to talk about the last three feasts today, which are incredibly messed up by what much of the church teaches. But if you're interested, come and ask me afterwards and i explain what I mean by that. But these feasts are fascinating in that there's a direct parallel that you can spot, observe isolate, recognize, for each one expressed and fulfilled in the events which make up the story that we know as the gospel. So each one of these feasts was saying something historically about the gospel. Okay? And um, as these feasts were being celebrated in their institutional form with Israel, because the sad thing is, uh, with all the best intent, what we... Grasp and embrace, as part of our practice, tends to become institutionalized. And uh, I, I can sound over over judgmental sometimes on the whole process, but but even things like what we call praise and worship, can become incredibly institutionalized and things like prayer and things like preaching and all these things, and we've probably got an element of it as well, but the point is they take on a life of their own within particular boundaries that become more religious than kingdom. Lots I could say about that, but I'll keep my mouth shut because I'll say too much and then I'll be in trouble. So there's a direct parallel that's fulfilled. now. As, as these feasts were being celebrated in their, in their institutional form, i.e., Israel repeating these feasts year upon year, they were being paralleled by a spiritual fulfillment in specific events related to Jesus and his claims. So I want to pull them out of an institutional setup and bring them into a prophetic reality. Okay, so the first of these feasts in the year was the Feast of Passover. It was a celebration of the children of Israel spending four centuries in a place of captivity, restriction, bondage, oppression, and um, uh, losing their identity within the situation they found themselves in and there being a solution that freed them and that solution was called the Passover. It was called the Passover because in this story, which many of you will recognise as the Prince of Egypt if you're not that familiar with reading it in the book of Exodus, what happened was there were these plagues, again, poetic or whatever is not the point, but the last one was that death was coming in the camp and the firstborn were going to die. Now again... Forget the discussion on that process at the moment, except to say this, that we have bondage and death. We have captivity and death. And what they had to do was take a lamb that had no blemishes and they had to sacrifice that lamb and put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel of the house. And God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, it was a solution to the death that existed within the community, okay? It was, a, it was to fix death. It was to fix the process of death and free us from the slavery that we have to the systems that we are under. And so the interesting thing is that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified on Passover day. So as the Jews were were ritually and institutionally sacrificing their Passover lamb in the locations that that was to be done, Jesus was dying on the cross on this hill outside the city called Calvary at the same time that that lamb was being sacrificed. He was the lamb of the world was being sacrificed. So one thing I do know for those of you to whom this might make sense is that if Jesus is anything, he is our Passover lamb. Now what's fascinating about the Passover sacrifice is that there was never a mention and get this that sacrificing that Passover lamb was to deal with the sins of the people it was to break the power of death so the condemnation was not on the people. There was a recognition of the state that was on the people that was going to be broken by an intervention of God himself through a miraculous provision that would break that over the people. So Jesus died at Passover. Now for those of you who are, have been around a while and biblical scholars, I would say this for you but won't spend any time on it. God could have quite easily had Jesus crucified on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, but he didn't. Why? Because that wasn't the point. Okay? The point was a covenant, a covenant to free you from the power of death and slavery to the world in which you lived. Okay, So, so Jesus died exactly at that same time. Now, now, within that feast was what they called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The whole thing was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so on the first night, the Passover lamb is slain. That's when Jesus died on the cross. On the next day, they have to eat what's called unleavened bread, which is not this kind of bread, because this bread has got something in it called yeast. They had to eat bread with no yeast in it, that made a wafer that's not very tasty, but they made that wafer and had to eat it, because symbolically, what was happening was in the Passover uh, experience they had to remove from their houses any trace of yeast or leaven. There's two words used in the Bible: yeast or leaven, because yeast or leaven is a corrupting agent. And they had to show that in this process of whatever was going on at Passover, there was no corruption involved in this. It was it was pure from corruption. So they were doing that on the Saturday while Jesus was still in the tomb. Right After his crucifixion and still in the tomb, this was indicating that as far as the one who was provided for us, there was no defect in his life. There was no corruption within him. So Jesus is the unleavened bread, no corruption, nothing corrupt in his life, perfect in every way. And then we move to the third day of that feast, which, of course, was the Sunday. That was the Sabbath, the Saturday. This was the Sunday, the first day of the week, which is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And the third part of that feast was that the priest would take sheaves of barley because it was the time of the barley harvest, and he would take the first fruits of the barley harvest, the very first harvested sheaves of the beginnings of the barley harvest, and early in the morning he would go into the temple or into the synagogue or wherever this was happening and he would wave these barley sheaves before the Lord in a spiritual ceremony that was indicating that this was the time of first fruits or life had come from the dead and this was the proof that life had come from the dead earth, what was a seed that was planted was now alive and had blossomed and multiplied and was now bearing fruit at the exact same time that the priest was waving these barley sheaves, Jesus was rising from the dead in Jerusalem. So all of these free feasts were fulfilled in that crucifixion weekend. Jesus was the Passover that died on the, on the Friday, he was the unleavened bread, proving in the process that there was no corruption in him. He could not be condemned. He could not be judged as unworthy. And on that third day, proving that there was a resurrection, and he was the first fruits of something new. He was the beginning of a new race, a new generation of people. So all this happened in those first three feasts, but they're not the ones really that I wanted to talk to you about tonight, because... Uh, 50 days later, 50 days after that that first fruits offering, 50 days after the resurrection, came the Feast of Weeks. So seven weeks after plus one day, came something that they knew as the Feast of Weeks. Okay, <clears throat> uh, we know it better. Those of us who are a little older as Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost is the Feast of Weeks. Uh, we celebrate it at something very unecclesiastical that we now know as Springbank Holiday. (coughs) Springbank Holiday is the Feast of Pentecost, which to the Jews was the Feast of Weeks. That's when we celebrate it. That's what we call it in the UK. And it it marked the birth of what we now know as the church, as recorded in Acts chapter 2. So when Jesus was going to die, he said, now here's, here's what, before I ascend back to my Father, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And that happened on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost happened to be the Feast of Weeks. It happened to be exactly 50 days after the resurrection. So whatever was happening in, in, on the day of Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2, was a reflection of what was happening in the Feast of Weeks. Now, what was happening in that Feast of Weeks is very interesting, because it was a celebration, not so much of the harvest, because now we've come to the wheat harvest. It's not so much a celebration of the harvest, as it was a celebration of the purpose of the harvest, So it's not just about what it is, it's about the purpose. So Acts chapter 2, Feast of Weeks, these loaves are about the purpose of all this. So the interesting thing was for this feast, there was a specific instruction. That specific instruction was you are to take the wheat and you are to grind it into fine flour. Okay, Grind it until it becomes ground, reduced, now of course I could I could talk in the context that what actually happened in the whole context of the crucifixion and the cross is that Jesus Himself was ground into, into powder, he was ground into the, the flower, the one who had been the first fruits, the one who who, who talked about in the gospels of the lesser seed of wheat falls in the ground and die, it abides the alone. But if it if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And that this harvest that had come in Christ had become for us flower. Okay? Why flower? Because if we're going to be the bread of life, what we need is flour, not seed. And so you were meant to turn the seed, Christ was the seed, you turn the seed into flour. You turn it into flour because you're going to make bread. But the interesting thing was, unlike that first set of feasts where they had to bake unleavened bread, bread without yeast, bread that was uncorrupted and pure and signifying absolute purity with no corruption. The instruction for this feast was, I want you to take yeast, I want you to take leaven, I want you to mix it with the flour that you have been provided from the harvest, and I want you to bake two loaves with yeast in it. Two loaves with leaven in it, representing the religious and the not religious as we understood the whole thing. Those who were in the system, those who were not in the system. Those who would be called in and those who would be called out by a religious concept, it was for everybody. There was a loaf to cover both aspects of the ministry and the revelation. So it was a celebration of a purpose of the harvest. So specific instruction, take take fine flour, Wheat flour, mixed yeast into it, baked two loaves. But what you have to understand is what you were doing was you were corrupting the loaves. You had to bake two loaves that were corrupted. Two loaves that were impure. Two loaves with the corrupting agent known as yeast or leaven. In the first feast, it was purge all the leaven out of Right In the next feast, it's absorb all the leaven into. So we have one feast that's purging it out because that was the expression of the purity of Christ. But the next feast, the church, he says absorb the leaven in. In other words, the brokenness, the worthlessness, the sinfulness, the inappropriate behaviours, the failures, the mistakes, The foolishness, the stupidity is baked into this loaf. It's not removed from it, it's put into it. It's mixed with the flour that we are provided, that has been ground, that is a picture of Christ, so that we bring who we are as we are, not as we should be, to be mixed into this, and that's what bakes these loaves. So you don't purge the leaven out of them, you absorb the leaven Into them. Now, this is a different thing because far too much emphasis has been put on church doctrine in purging the leaven out of the people instead of absorbing the leaven into the church and saying that there is a process that happens here that is very different. I'm going to explain that to you in just a moment. So, the introduction of the yeast changed the whole nature of the loaf. Before it was unleavened, now it's risen. It's fluffed out. The whole nature of it is different. Also, the, what it, its taste has been changed by the addition of the leaven. And there are still people running about trying to taste their Christianity in an unleavened state. But once we reached Pentecost, the taste was supposed to change. It's supposed to taste of brokenness, it's supposed to taste of our failures, it's supposed to taste of our weakness in with the perfection of Christ so that we begin to absorb with it the reality of human life but understand that we have been made something because of the promise of Christ. You can't take the yeast out of the leavened bread. In fact, it's foolish to try to take the yeast out of the leavened bread. There are many parables that that, that really back that up, talking about everything from fish in the net to yeast in the bread. You don't separate it. What you do is you bake it in, which is fascinating. You don't try and get it out. You bake it into the bread. It becomes part of who we are. Now, some of you are confused, upset, and struggle because some of you see things in this house that you are not sure should be in your view accommodated in the way that they are because it's a mindset that says we have to get the leaven out of the loaf in order for the loaf to be pure but what you finish up with is unleavened bread and the only one that's unleavened to the right degree is Christ so we are very accepting and we are very accommodating of things at one time I would have never given space or room to and would have judged harshly because I have understood about the church is bread with leaven in it and we put the leaven in and in the process that takes place within the making of this bread something happens which is quite remarkable in that it gets absorbed to the point where the actual baking of that into the bread resolves the problem of the process of the yeast because once you bake it the yeast stops working because now it's an integral part of the loaf. If you want to know how people change, it's not when you get the leaven out of their lives, it's when you bring their lives into what should be the church and as that becomes baked in the fires of life and in the heat of circumstance, things get resolved and people know they're loved and instead of being outside, they're in, inseparably part of this wonderful thing called the church that is represented by these loaves. So we're here to bake it, not fake it. We are not gonna fake church, we're not gonna fake holiness, we're not, you know, whatever people's issues or thoughts and why and this and criticism, we are not gonna fake it, we're gonna bake it. And this is a safe environment where that can happen. Because the dynamic difference between unleavened bread and the leavened bread is the yeast. Unless there's yeast in this, it can't be this. Unless there is yeast in the church, it can't be the church. Because it's the yeast that makes it the church. It's the problems that make it the church. It's the corruption that make it the church. And unless that's there, it's not the church. Don't look at me as though butter wouldn't melt in your mouth. See, leaven is always spoken of in the Bible as a corrupting agent. But listen to this. I want some of you been around a while to listen. It is never described as sin. Sin is never used to describe leaven. Now, when I looked at this today, I mean, I, I've seen this before, but it shocked me again. Because kind of the, 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 whether it was unspoken or spoken, I don't know, but it was always the leaven of sin, But actually, if you go away, and some of you will be surprised at this, you will find the Bible does not talk about the leaven of sin. It doesn't. I'll tell you what it does talk about. In Luke 12, verse 1, it talks about the leaven of hypocrisy. It says, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees and of Herod. And then Luke says, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So it's not sin as a substance or an object or a thing or a behavior that is the leaven. But I'll tell you what, hypocrisy is the wrong kind of leaven that will do the same thing to our bread as the right yeast has done. And when that gets in, you destroy the community by gossip, by condemnation, by judgment, by a lack of acceptance... It also talks about in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 8 about the, 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 the leaven of malice and wickedness. You know what malice is? When you're malicious. When, when you respond in what well, we often think is a, a caring way, but then there's a bunch of people who think God would not be malicious if he sends the great proportion of the people that is created in the world to to conscious eternal torment forever and forever and forever, that somehow that's not a malicious act. How do we get so twisted to think that that would not be malicious? And it's saying we have to be careful of the leaven of malice, maliciousness in our doctrine, maliciousness in our thoughts about God, and maliciousness towards one another. Who we think is doing what and how we think they're doing it and what level we think they should be supported or not supported, and of wickedness. Now, wickedness is not just doing mean things. Wickedness means being burdened down. And you look at the Greek, burdened down with the issues of life. When we get a hold of that that takes us on the wrong track, that also becomes a kind of leaven. So it's never spoken of in the bible as sin it is hypocrisy it is malice and wickedness but there's another one that nobody ever told me and it was only actually when Chris mentioned it uh, probably a couple of years ago that I thought flip I missed that which is the major one which says in Matthew 13 verse 33 he told them still another parable the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour. You know why it's a large amount of flour? Because you're gonna make a big loaf. She took it and mixed it into a large amount of flour until it worked through the whole dough, okay? So the kingdom of heaven is the absorption of the weaknesses of humanity into the strength of God. It's the absorption of my unrighteousness and inability to be righteous into his righteousness and his gifted righteousness to me because the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. See, what we're focusing on It's not the other one, because when you focus on the other one, your whole focus is we've got to get the leaven out of people's lives. We've got to get the leaven out. This is not right. We've got to know what we are doing is we're saying, here's the flower. The flower is provided, which is Christ, and there's a big amount. But what we're doing is we're bringing the leaven. We are the kingdom coming into that flower that makes it produce these wonderful loaves which feed the world. I'll tell you which you'd prefer if I had some unleavened bread and said, right, we're going to make a sandwich. I can tell you which every one of you would prefer. It's the leavened bread, because there's something about leavened bread. See, mostly unleavened bread is eaten because of ritual. But leavened bread is eaten because of its nutritious provision and the pleasure of eating it and it makes an absolutely brilliant sandwich and you're all frothing at the mouth now thinking if you just slice that, put some ham and cheese in there, we could all have a really good night. So two amazing things happened in that process which was that weakness, failure, defects, etc. was absorbed but also ultimately halted and resolved in the baking process, which I've said to you. So, see, some people worry, if if we're gracious, if we accept everybody, if we don't put people right and put people down and challenge everything, what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. They're going to get baked into this wonderful loaf and reach a point where, in the baking process, our lives come out right. We get healed, we get fixed. The issues get resolved. We find the place of peace and completeness in that baking process. But also the kingdom of God becomes an integrated part of our life and existence. Now when that is understood, how you interpret the other elements of the expression of this feat in Acts chapter two take on a different emphasis. And I'm gonna just talk about this briefly before we close. Acts chapter 2 is the New Testament uh, narrative describing what the Feast of Weeks, the Pentecost of old, has become in the loaves that are now not physical loaves in that sense, but they are loaves that are the church because the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost. This thing that we know as the church starts here. Therefore, we can assume from that that this is what the church is meant to be. Leavened bread, and we make no apologies for the leaven that is in our bread because that's what the church Is meant to be. That's what becomes the attraction because people bring their leaven. We don't take leaven out of the people, they bring their leaven and they bring it into the flour and into the loaf and get baked into this wonderful thing that's called the kingdom of God that is represented by these two loaves. And so on the day of Pentecost, they were all meeting together, and of course, something that I'm very familiar with because all of my background is Pentecostal for those of you who understand what that means and <clears throat> some of you will have been concerned and may still be concerned that uh, my emphasis in recent years has not been on some of the things that I was raised as an emphasis when I was raised as a good Pentecostal in the context of the gifts of the Spirit and speaking in tongues and those kind of things. I still speak in tongues consistently. I find it very valuable. Uh, I'm not at the place where I can integrate that into our journey at the moment in a way that I feel would be meaningful and helpful and it might come but you know I'm just being open and and honest with you because I've seen some other things in here which is that on that day there was a massive crowd gathered because it was a feast and so there were people who had come for the feast from all the nations around and it begins to give you a lot of the nations. that wouldn't mean a lot to you now because a lot of those names have changed in the last 2,000 years. But all these people who weren't Jewish, who didn't necessarily speak Hebrew or, or many of them possibly Aramaic as a second language or as a language of trade, but they came from their own communities and from their own countries and here's then the The the, the 120 people who are now part of this thing that's called the church, who'd been told to wait because they were going to become this loaf and they were going to begin a process of multiplying, turn us into one huge bakery, right, Gregg's. One huge bakery that would replicate this process to bring life to the world and it says that what happened is that, that as they were gathered there, there was a sound of a wind and, and a, a demonstration. And what happened is it says the Holy Spirit filled them and they began to speak in other tongues. Okay? Now, I was raised with that and it's great and I love it. Um, but the problem is when that becomes institutionalised, like the Feast of Israel, it becomes an introverted process... That we then engaging for our own personal benefit. Now, I think there is a part of that that is for our benefit, in the same way that, you know, if you ate the unleavened bread, it was partly for your benefit. But it was never the point. The unleavened bread, the point was never here's some bread so you can have wonderful bread and enjoy the bread. It was to show that there was a process that was happening in the preparation of the journey that was outside of our strength that required that perfection to be inbuilt into it. But when that becomes institutionalised, it's changed. So, so I have come to the issue when I read this and I read this afresh, here's what I see in verse 6 that the people who were outside the room where these people were speaking in tongues, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language. Another translation puts it, we hear them speak in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. So to those who were listening, this was not some mystical expression that was coming out of some people who had become institutionalised to a Jewish process. They were actually hearing in a language that they could understand the works of God which was saying, we are here to show you the loaves. There is flour that's come because of the crushing of Christ. And we know that you're not perfect. We know that you have flaws and defects, but you are being invited to mix with that flour and become part of something amazing called the kingdom of God, which is the loaves that feed the world. And we've got a couple of types, because some of you are religious down to the bottom of your socks. Well, okay. We want to bring you into, some of you can give two hoots about religion, but we want to bring you into, because we want to bring you into the life which is Christ in these two laws. They heard every one of them speak in their own language the wonderful works of God. Let me tell you how that translates more to me now. I, I speak in tongues because there is a blessing and it's part of my history and I love it. But I'll tell you what, I have to question myself because here on this day, this Pentecost, this week whatever it was that was in them was enabling them to speak the language of the people that they were sent to reach. Shandai Shabba is not the language of the people we're sent to reach. And I don't mean to be disrespectful or dishonouring to gifts of the Spirit, because I think they're important, but that is not the language of the people we're sent to reach. I want to be able to speak millennial. For these guys... And for some of you, you've snuck into that. I can't speak millennial. I know there was a time in my life, because I'm now coming up 61. I may look 30, but I'm honestly coming up 61. There was a time in my life when we did stuff, because I felt equipped to speak to the generation that we were reaching. And we spoke in their language the wonderful works of God. And I'm getting a little long in the tooth now, and I don't know the language of millennial. But the working of the Spirit within the context of the Feast of Weeks coming at Pentecost into this bread, if anything, has to empower us to speak millennial. And we have to speak a little baby boomer as well because we're still around. And we have to speak a little Gen X as well because Gen X are still around. And whoever it is that's coming. Yeah? And traditional as well. From before that, we hear them speak in our own language, the wonderful works of God. Now, I hope you're hearing my heart. This, this, this is an attempt to get us to understand that the power that was given was to produce these loaves. It wasn't for self-indulgence and self-engrandissement to lock within doors so that we could get goosebumps the sides of basketballs and go away saying, wasn't that a great meeting? It was so that everything that pours out of us speaks the language of the people that we were sent to reach in clarity, in purpose and explains in a way that can be grasped the wonderful works of God and incidentally I think the works of God are absolutely wonderful and I think the stories of our redemption are incredible And I think there are many lives in here whose story you have not heard. They're fantastic because God is at work and God is moving. But unless we have this experience, we will still be speaking our language in our little room for our engrandissement until the end of the world or the end of our lives. And that was never the point of the Feast of Weeks was I am launching you into something powerful Because the next feast that comes is a gathering together, a feast of trumpets. We are in the process now of the feast of weeks. This is what rests on us, what is required of us. So my prayer is, yeah, I want to speak in tongues. But I want those tongues to be the languages of everybody who is gathering so they understand and hear the wonderful works of God. Do you know what happened when that took place? He says immediately 5,000 people said we're in. 5,000 people on that one afternoon said, we want some of this. Whatever had come had so spoken their language that they found it irresistible and desirable to say, I want to be in. That's what we are meant to be to our community, to our world, to the people that we were sent to reach. And if we are not that, we will have failed in our understanding of the feast that we have been brought into and we will not be this bread with yeast that was intended in that wonderful feast. But I want to be part of that loaf. I want you to be part of that loaf. I want us to be part of that bread that brings life to the world. So Father, in Jesus' name, please help us. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us again with your spirit. And whatever may be the personal helps and implications of that, of which there are many, help us to grasp the full truth of this feast that birthed the church so that we could speak to people in their own language the wonderful works of God. We need it. I need you to help me. I need you to make me willing to be a linguist again so that whatever it is that I am familiar with He's put subject to your ability to put within me a language that I have not learned but can speak so it's understood. Let this house be full of people who can do that. And let the grace that you so wonderfully released in Christ that became the crushed flower that invited our brokenness to become part of this wonderful thing that is bred to the world. May that be the thing that we manifest, that we show, that we release because we are willing tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's me. That's all i got to say. So, you got anything you want to say? And the bread's still feeling quite good. I bought it last night, but that'll make an excellent slice of toast with that. And I bet we haven't got a toaster. Yeah, chip butty. So hope you hear my heart tonight. I'm prophesying to the house. These two loaves are a prophecy to the house. And... uh, Here's what the children of Israel were taught. If you receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, you receive a prophet's reward. If we receive this as a prophecy to us, we'll get this thing and it'll work.